building a platform to share challenges, thoughts from leaders, and network together, the LabOps Leadership Podcast is elevating LabOps professionals as well as the industry as a whole. With the intent of unlocking the power of LabOps, we deliver unique insights to execute the mission at hand, to standardize LabOps and empower LabOps leaders. I'm Carrie Anderson. And I'm Samantha Black. Welcome to the LabOps Leadership Podcast. We are here today with Amri Parand, who is Senior Director of Operations and Practice Leader at Azure Clean Rooms On Demand. Thanks for joining us today, Amri. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Great. So let's jump right in. First question is usually about background. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Sure. From my education, I'm a mechanical engineer. And I joined my first life science company. It was called Pasira Pharmaceuticals as an intern just before graduation. It's this perfect intersection of luck and me looking for opportunities. So at that time, when I was hired, they were still, all their products were still pre-commercial. So they're all late stage developmental. And right when I joined, it was on the tail end, some bad news from clinical trial. So the company had gone through significant layoffs, I think 40% layoffs. And with my hiring in, in that cohort, they were rebuilding again, they recruited new funding and we're rebuilding. So the company was small. It was about 60 employees. Mission at that point was to commercialize their first product. So it was all hands on deck, trying to get this product kind of into the end zone and commercialized. And so even as an intern in their engineering group, I got a lot of opportunities to, to learn the ropes of how operations in pharmaceuticals actually runs. So my title was, was CAD intern, just controlled all their drawings and revised drawings. And uh, so in this role early on, my responsibility was to walk down the equipment that was being built, like the actual, we called them skids. The skids were all of our stainless tanks, the valves, the pumps, everything that's responsible for manufacturing the product. So I'd walk down the equipment and then make sure that the drawings aligned. So it was, so at a very granular level, I understood what the equipment was that was charged with manufacturing the product. And uh, so with that experience, I kind of started to connect to other departments. And that's the first experience I had where I started to pull information from different groups. And then I became a concentration group of information that other departments depended on to understand what's happening on the floor. I started to learn about calibration and started to learn about the data output that was coming out of this skid. So these, this manufacturing process was highly, so there's a lot of data collected. If you think about temperature probes, pressure probes, conductivity, mixer speeds, pump speeds, valve states. So there's a big data set that represents the progress of every batch. And, uh, and if you imagine we're developmental, we're still trying to find the secret sauce, if you will. And uh, so small variations, batch to batch, want to be understood, need to be understood, are hard to understand. That's, that's what is the controlling step for progress. That's what I observed at least at this stage of the company's maturity. So it became a critical piece that I could contribute after I learned how to read these, uh, these data traces from the automation was I could get this data and then share it with the R&D leaders and the operations leaders who were using this analysis to determine how they should tweak the recipe to make the next batch more successful and closer to the endpoints they want to see. So I started to incorporate this knowledge of how to get the data out, how to relate that to how the instrumentation actually works out on the floor. And so that kind of got me in front of decision makers who were actually deciding how to vary parameters to achieve the endpoints they need. A year passes and they have an opening in their automation engineering department. At this point, I've also graduated. So I applied for this role in automation engineering and which kind of aligns really well with my background in mechanical engineering. And I get that role. 
And then a short year after that, the company is successful. We commercialize this product and, and we transform one of our research and development suites in San Diego into a commercial suite. So there's a, the level of compliance goes up a little bit when you're commercializing. I was then, my role then was to continue kind of overseeing the automation system and, uh, and these data streams from production and to make sure that all the ends are tied up between the data that's generated on the floor and what ends up being recorded in our batch record and what kind of goes along with substantiating the quality of every single batch we make. So also, of course, you can, when you transition from R&D to commercialization, it's, we call that a tech transfer, a technology transfer. And physically what's happening at a company level is that the folks who are operating the equipment, they're actually changing in the prior stages, like in clinical development and in those early stages, a lot of R&D folks are involved on the floor. They're watching the equipment. They're watching real-time data, sort of free to make little tweaks to keep the process going. And when you transition into commercial, those people are gone. And the folks running the equipment are manufacturing technicians who, you know, they, they don't possess that institutional knowledge of exactly, oh, well, this doesn't sound right. Let me tweak something or let me report this up to a supervisor because this doesn't seem right. You, you trade this institutional knowledge and who's running the equipment, but you gain a lot of consistency. That's what having manufacturing technicians affords you is that there's a much better guarantee that batch to batch, it'll be run consistently. So what it also means is that if there's a built-in issue in the way it's running, that issue will appear again and again every lot because this was a young commercial system. It was sort of riddled with bugs, if you will. And some of them were software bugs, which were in my area to fix. So we called this, we had a big blitz where, where we had to repair these software bugs. So that was my responsibility. And uh, so I was learning what sorts of issues appear when you're commercial and then what are the corrective actions that are appropriate. So I implemented them. And at the same time, because it's a new commercial system, our cycle time was quite slow. So you can imagine cost of goods is quite high and cycle time is slow. So coupled with the mission to remove the software bugs was also this sort of concurrent mission to over time reduce cycle time significantly and try to get lots to fit within a 24-hour period so that the company could bring production to a 24-7. So that took several years, but we, but when we launched commercially, we were producing about maybe less than five successful lots per week that were passing our release criteria. And then when this sort of development and cycle time reduction and the blitz to reduce bug was basically much more mature, this same production facility was producing lots. So the whole company had to, the culture in parallel with my development and my learning, the company culture was evolving. We staffed up from 60 employees and I started up to over over 250 at this hub that manufactured in San Diego. We transformed the culture from being very uh, centered around development, R&D, tweaking. We evolved and moved to much more consistent, regimented even, you might say, sort of production facility. And so running much more consistently, finding alternate suppliers. And we, we did everything we had to do to make production more consistent and more reliable. And, uh, and that was success. And uh, fortunately, sales also of this product picked up and it was time to scale up production. The company was looking at ways that it could guarantee the stability of the supply and kind of risk mitigate against having one single production facility in San Diego. So what the company decided to do is to contract with, with the CDMO in the, and to augment production. So they decided to retain their own run production facility in San Diego and bring up this, uh, this partner in the UK. And, and they noticed over time that I, my character is such that I like to work with lots of groups. That's what helped me be successful early on as I was collecting information from different groups, sharing it to different groups, 
I, I was glad I like being in the position where I'm a I'm a central person that that people can depend on and go to. And I like to learn from lots of people too. My my career gets dull if I'm not learning things that rub off on me from other folks. So because of my because I'm inclined this way, they asked me to go to the UK with another engineer and uh, and lead the tech transfer effort to to this CDMO in the end. So when I reflect back on that opportunity, it actually was one of the high points of my career until now. We so my family and I relocated to the UK and we lived there for one year while we while this UK partner of ours was uh, beginning to start up their own the, the same skit. It's this twin skit of what we had in San Diego. We started it up in the UK. And so so of course we had to teach them the technology and my role was to teach them how to manage the automation piece, how to have their how to get their arms around all the documentation they have to use to all the specs they use to control how the automation is actually developed. And then we also had to teach them we had to transfer all this tribal knowledge that may or may not appear in documentation and explain when you run this equipment, you should expect these issues. If they pop up, here's a library of prior corrective actions we've and then we hand it over. And then uh, and then when one year was up, went back home and then we support them remotely. So it was very interesting to observe what sorts of issues appear on when this other company is running our same equipment on our same recipe. Interestingly, a lot of these are the same, but some issues are unique and it just comes from the way they approach doing certain activities. So it was having this, this other company run the equipment and run our product actually gave us enough information and it, it gave it shed new light on our own process. So observing deviations that they experienced at their facility helped us discover preemptive improvements we could implement back in San Diego on the original facility. And now we're, we're roughly at 2016. And uh, so we're commercially manufacturing in San Diego and in the UK. And, uh, and now as an initiative to, to implement continuous improvements and to uh, continue reducing the cost of goods, it's time to scale up the process again. So the process is scaled up, new equipment is designed, and again, I don't think I shared this part, but the company culture at this year was they really wanted to own every piece of the process, not just the manufacturing, even the design of the equipment. So yes, we hired engineering firms to help, but the in-house engineers were the ones that primarily developed the design of these systems. So we, we had experts in hardware who actually identified you know, what sorts of tank geometries and pellers we need in our mixers, what sorts of valves we need. And then they had my team and myself, and we actually defined the software recipe and the software steps. So this really strong in-house team made a lot of decisions on how to build a scaled-up system. And so it's constructed. And then the first scaled-up system, it's a, it's about four and a half times larger in per batch than the original one. The first one is built in the UK with our CDMO. And then the second one is built back in San Diego. So capacity manufacturing of this product is augmented almost 10x in about four years. And, uh, and so that equipment is running at that time and it's being started up still, not commercial yet, still under development and scale of process. And, and I get this bug, like I want to, I want to develop in a different direction away from automation engineering, more toward people manage, get close to, and so move forward in that sense, develop new personal management skills, but also move my involvement with the life science process earlier in the life cycle of products. So I wanted to kind of work in clinical manufacturing because then I can work with techs around the floor or getting the manufacturing done. And I could be, and R&D could be my client. Because new pipeline candidates that R&D is developing, they need 
to run them on, on equipment that's capable of clinical phase production. So it's equipment that's bigger than lab scale, smaller than commercial scale. And um, so I uh, look for this new role and, and I find it in my company and I apply for the job and I get that. And so in this role, I'm the senior manager of production for clinical production. And I'm also, it's hybrid role. The other half is I'm also the manufacturing technical support senior manager. And so in this role, I have, I have feet in two worlds. One is that I support our commercial manufacturing, investigate quality issues for them. And that's for the manufacturing technical support role. And the second role is that I lead the team that's doing clinical production. And I get to work with R&D every day and kind of learn how their pipeline's evolving. And so in, in that role is when I really gain these leadership skills in people management. Prior to that, the leadership I had came from technical expertise. And like I said, people would come to me for data. And so my leadership evolved at this time and learned how to relate to all different folks and uh, learned what's important to the R&D department and what sorts of results they need to have and how we can help from the lab management perspective, managing this clinical facility for them and getting the loss out the door. And so that was also a great experience. In that role, I reported to a great mentor, Dan Copeland. And I, so I learned data analysis from him. I learned how to have a really kind of level head from him too. And that's, I'm very thankful. And, uh, and then at, at this point, I had been at Basira for about 13 years. And uh, it was an experience I would, I would never give back. It was amazing. And so the opportunity came knocking. I heard about this company called Azure Group. And they had just built a new subsidiary called Clean Rooms On Demand. They, so Azure Group is a life science consultant. And in 2018, they basically learned from one of their clients that they're always receptive to client needs. So they learned that one client had a need to build a clean room for their clinical process. And uh, so the client was weighing the cost of building their own. They even considered outsourcing production of their clinical activity to a CDOL. And they did a cost-benefit analysis. This client decided they, they still wanted to build it. And uh, this was in Boston. Real estate was scarce. It was going to be it was going to be a tough proposition to build a small clean room. So Azure decided, oh, we have a warehouse for other activities. Why don't we build a modular clean room in that warehouse? The client will move into our clean room. They'll operate their process. They'll retain their IP. They'll, they'll retain their personnel who know how to run the process. It'll just be our clean room. So we'll take care of the compliant envelope, if you will, the facility. And this client can focus with their core competence on the chemistry. And so that was successful for the product and successful for Azure. And so this kind of launched clean rooms on demand. So this business now exists in Boston. There, there are many clean rooms leased out there by small companies and large. Moderna is a big client of clean rooms on demand in Boston. And the business wanted to grow. So it grew out in the West Coast. It's, so there's a clean room on demand facility in the San Diego market to tap that biotech hub. And there's one that I'm launching as this practice leader in the San Francisco. And so it's the same concept that they brought on with this one client back in 2018. We, we have this facility in Alameda and it has 26 clean rooms. And so multiple tenants can license the clean rooms, multiple clients can license them. And uh, it's the same thing I described. We take care of the facility, like HVAC maintenance, routine sanitization, warehouse, material management, pest control, office space, cafeteria, all the things, all these ancillary costs that a client doesn't need to carry for them to develop their clinical process, we carry that for them. So again, they can focus their core competence on the chemistry. We have this tagline, we bring that compliance, they bring the science. My facility is under construction now. It's going to launch open stores for clients in Q1 of next year, 2024. Wow, that's 
an incredible journey to hear how you went from mechanical engineering to where you are today. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And I think that's what I like in, in my life and in my career. I like to learn new things, develop experience changes. And so this career has taken me around the world, literally. And it's taken me from San Diego to the Bay Area also. And yeah, I, I wouldn't give it up for anything in the world. Yeah, you covered a lot. You did a great job. Some, a lot of the questions that I would have asked, you already answered them preemptively. So I love when that happens. So that was great. But I'm wondering, coming from an engineering background, I think that's like a main theme of the podcast is you can come to operations from anywhere. I think you don't have to have a necessarily science degree to be in lab operations. And I found it so interesting to see how you use that in like your first company. But I'm just wondering why you decided to make the shift where you're probably not involved in the equipment side of it so much and more historically where your background is. That seems like a big jump. So maybe, maybe can you talk a little bit about why you decided to make that jump? Was it just maybe you liked the people management and you wanted to do more of that? Or I'm just curious what motivated you? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I have to ask myself that too sometimes. But no. What I didn't share earlier is that I'm also I'm a closeted finance aficionado. And late in my career, I also got my master's degree. It's a hybrid degree called Master of Engineering, and it merges engineering disciplines with some business administration disciplines. And I, I got that specifically to expand my leadership skills and how to sort of think as a department manager, a finance leader for a department too. And so in this new opportunity with Azure Cleans On Demand, as a practice leader, I'm responsible. I'm responsible for the whole PNL for the facility, and and it combines responsibility. So obviously, it's got the oversight responsibility for the facility and all the personnel inside, but it's also a client facing. So it's helping me to stay close to what the client needs, so we can be responsible for their needs. And personally, that satisfies sort of my interests in learning about people, learning about their issues, trying to bring creative solutions to their issues. And then also this challenge of running the site profitably, trying to render services that are that will delight the customer while still delivering value to us. So it, it's a new challenge, and I always like new challenges. And, and this kind of helps me continue embarking on this development where now I can focus on my sort of financial discipline, if you will. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think it sounds like you like a hybrid role where you just take on a lot of different types of tasks and that that fits in perfectly with operations because I feel like you have to manage so many different things, so many different relationships with different teams cross-functionally. It sounds like it, it's a great fit. I'm sure in your time, you've come across a lot of different issues. And I think working on the R&D side and then the commercial side, what are some of the main challenges working in an operations space that, that you noticed throughout all of those, like what are some of the common threads through there that you've picked up on and have been able to address? What's interesting is in, in, in automation engineering, we have this troubleshooting method. It's like a, it's like a pyramid. If you think of how equipment in the field, which, which is software driven, how it's built from the ground up. So there's a physical layer on the floor. That's like the cables and the instruments. And then you go all the way to the top and then you finally get this presentation layer, which is what's on the HMI, like what the operator sees. And so in between the physical layer and the presentation layer, there's everything else. There's the databases, the computer, the software. And so issues normally, the most common issues are the ones lowest down, so physical layer. And then, so that's like a very simplistic way of identifying issues in, in automation. But I, I use that analogy 
to, to identify systemic process issues, even human process issues, follow a similar pyramid in my view. So really over and over again, failures happen at the most simple physical level, or they happen at the most simple sort of human level. And then when you have a network of when you have a network of humans, for that a better term, but there's the numbers of conversations you have to have as a network of humans, it grows exponentially. So it's like a game of telephone. There's going to be miscommunication when more people are involved. As soon as more than one person is involved, there's going to be some degree of miscommunication. And you can have success even with 5% miscommunication. But if you have more and more groups, the opportunity for miscommunication grows and it becomes harder. And so what I see in normally in really critical activities when like t- tensions are high, if you will, and there's pressure, and there's like the time it has to be crunched, for example, then people don't have the time necessarily to communicate clearly. And so this happens at the tech transfer, like when there's two different company cultures trying to work on one process, this is what we saw on the So the first bridge we have to cross is getting a common language, if you will. And so what that means is that this issue can be anticipated because it happens everywhere. So having really well-defined processes that are written down or maintaining dashboards where people can communicate issues and bring to light issues they're having on the floor is really helpful. So in operations, what we do is we have a daily stand-up meeting. It's 15 minutes in the morning. And we it's we use a visual management board and we just write where the we have written down what are the plans for the day. And there's a streamlines very functional group and what are the activities for the next for the next period. Maybe it's just the next day even. But so every group goes down and they express to everyone else in the room, like I'm doing this today, tomorrow I'm doing this, I have this obstacle. Who can help me get past this obstacle? So it's just, it's very frank. And uh, and we can use language where, you know, I have this issue with the calibration. Like it's calibration's issue. Please help me with this obstacle. <laughs> You're the ones that can help me. And so we identify with really clear language what needs to be done to get people's issues removed so they can move. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible way to approach communication within the team. And I think Operations, it is a customer service role. And especially at your current company, you're working with other companies, you really are customer service. What are some tools and ways you have to improve communication with the other companies you're working with? Oh, there, there's a preemptive component to that too, in my view. When we bring a licensee on and they're about to move in, then a major piece of the agreement we have to arrive at is a mutual understanding of the services and the swim lanes. So when a licensee comes to our facility, we really become one of their one of their most prominent suppliers, if you will, this level of service we're providing to them. It's probably one of the most significant supplier relationships that they're going to have. Um, it's it's us and their critical API or their tissue supplier. It's We're up there. So it's important to understand a mutual, it's important to establish mutual understanding of where our services go and where their responsibility begins. So there's a long, there's actually a lengthy process of, of site fit where we make sure that we can induct all their assets and all their raw materials. And at the same time, we're continually talking about Okay, this is our offering. This is our offering. This is where the offering ends. This is where you can opt into enhanced offerings. This is where, and then this is where your responsibility begins. So there's that preemptive piece where we educate and just said, we arrive mutually at an understanding of what will help us both be successful, the client and Azure. And then on an ongoing basis, we, we have touch points where we also want to remain abreast of what's happening in the room. We, we don't need to, at a basic level, for us to just render the services, we don't need to know what's in the room necessarily because it's their process, their intellectual property. But if we know a little bit of when they're getting closer to their milestone, let's say, about to, then we can understand the human side that maybe tensions will be higher. If they have a failure, they'll have to, they'll have to regroup quickly and maybe repeat a run. We can anticipate 
maybe they're going to need like stat test results or stat deliveries of new raw materials. So, so we like to have touch points and understand what's happening so we can anticipate. And then we staff appropriately. We can prepare a backup plan, maybe get an extra fridge for them ready if we know it's gonna be if we know there's gonna be extra raw materials, for example. So by by doing this, kind of pretty, pretty aggressively talking and asking, how's it going this week? What's happening next week? Then we can be better partners. And uh, and again, we view that as our role. We want them to focus on their chemistry because we want to accelerate their path through clinical development. And we can accomplish that mission by being the ones who take the extra time to check in because they don't always have time to, to, they don't have time to initiate talks with us, but we're there to serve. We make sure that we have open communications at all times. And I think that's how we avoid these issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's incredible advice for any ops leader, whether you're in R&D or the environment you're in, just understanding the why of the science going on and how you can best be there and support. It's a great approach. Okay. So I had another question. I'm curious. This is a funny one, but you mentioned overseeing the building, the facility as a whole, and that's everything from pests to a lot that can go on within operations. What's one of the funniest things that you are now overseeing that you maybe didn't expect to? So I kind of everything. Ask me like how a TV show is, how a movie is, how a restaurant is. I'll just tell you, well, it's great. <laughs> I love it. Or, and so I'm, I'm famously not picky when it comes to snacks or cafeteria facilities. But you, I notice with my employees, and especially with I, when I tour other facilities of ours in the East Coast, I noticed other clients, there's, a, there's suggestion boxes. And uh, there's so many complaints about the cafeteria facility that we provide. You know, like we have snacks and drinks. We have this beverage machine, the bean-to-cup coffee machine. That's, I think it's the most delicious coffee that there is. But... So many complaints. I manage everything in the facility. I manage like even the bathrooms. I'm even, I'm the food and beverage coordinator too. So that's the most surprising is that the hardest place to get people to agree and to be happy is in the cafeteria. I definitely relate to that. Yeah. Always the surprising one. People love their snacks. They're very picky about it. (laughs) Yeah, they are. I think you did such a great job at answering our questions. Like you packed so much information into all of those. But I think just to finish up here, I think you have a lot more to share with people. And if somebody wants to find out more about what you do or maybe learn from you, can they find you? Are you open to connecting with people and sharing more about your story? And how can somebody do that? So I don't do the social things too much, but I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, so anyone can find me there. And yeah, I'm definitely open to to talk with anybody who's interested and to learn from them too. Awesome. Thank you, Omri. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for spending the time to share your story with us today. We really appreciate it. And we wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Samantha. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the LabOps Leadership Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's guest. For show notes, resources, and more information about LabOps Unite, please visit us at labops.community slash podcast. This show is powered by Elemental Machines.